but at least a major difference that we experience now that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we didn't see and experience and, and, and eyewitness the traumatizing and tragic sins around the world immediately after it happened. This is a new development in our time period where somebody does something that is grievous on the other side of the world and we know about it within minutes. As many of you heard this past week, a gentleman walked into a mosque with a a GoPro video camera on his head and videotaped or or, or recorded and then live streamed as it was happened 17 minutes worth of him taking the life of over uh, nearly 50 different people. Years ago, if that happened, we wouldn't have heard about it for days, maybe weeks. And for some of us, we heard about it within minutes. And for many around the world, they watched it live. I'm afraid that when we hear of... Tragedies like that. And we live in a time period where we have become unfortunately conditioned and desensitized that when we we hear of something like that, a terrorist attack, we immediately think, I bet it was a Muslim. And I bet they killed non-Muslim people. And there rises up within us a sense of righteous anger in indignation. And then I also suspect, because we are desperately sinful, that when we hear that it was a non-Muslim who was the perpetrator, and that it was a group of Muslims whose lives have been taken, although we would never articulate it publicly, although the words may never even come off our, our lips, there's a small part of us that goes, justice. And that's wicked within us. (laughs) And we're going to read a chapter for the ninth uh, sermon in this series in the book of Esther, where this is a confusing chapter. And many people turn to this particular chapter, and there are certainly several others, but many people turn to this particular chapter in Esther 9, And they use it as a means to justify holy war and the taking of lives of those who don't believe the same thing I do. And truth be told, as we read the passage this morning, there's going to be an inner conflict in your own heart. But don't you dare settle on that. (laughs) Um, There are so many verses in the New Testament that are going to write what we're going to read this morning. Uh, The title of this series is God Ruling from the Shadow. Uh, And we've seen this throughout the whole book where God appears to be distant. His name is never mentioned. There's no synonym mentioned. There is no prayer offered in this whole book. But yet God has not abandoned his people. He's not left his people. He is what appears to be off in the side, in the shadows, but he is still ruling and governing and orchestrating all things for his glory and his good 
and the good of his people. This particular message this morning is entitled, Victory is Yours, and then if I had room, dot, 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 it's yours for the taking. Victory is yours, and it's yours for the taking. It's almost as if it's free money that's just being handed to us. Uh, Let me pray just one more time, and then let's jump into the word. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would teach us this morning. Father, speak clearly through me uh, and use your word, not mine, but use your words to encourage us and to lift us up and to grow us up more and more in the grace and knowledge of who your Son is. Father, we confess that there is a part of us that we do inwardly smile at the events that took place this past week. Father, root that evil out of us and replace it with your tenderness and your kindness and your compassion and your love. Father, would you, would you come this morning and speak powerfully and meet each one of us where we're at and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind and a heart that's able to understand. Father, meet us where we're at and then bring us along. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Esther chapter 9, it's a longer chapter, and there are lots of old is or old uh, pagan names. I've asked that Persian names just stick with me, and uh, I promise we will get through the chapter. Esther 9, starting at verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all of the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha in Delphon and Aspatha in Poratha and Adelia in Aradatha in Parmashta and Arasai in Ardai in Vasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. 
and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. And they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, and on the 14th day, and they rested. And on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Interestingly enough, and this isn't part of the the sermon this morning, but uh, interestingly enough, um, this coming Saturday, next week's message, we'll finish up Esther, uh, the rest of chapter 9, and then into chapter 10, and it's going to be all about the celebration of the Jewish holiday Purim, and in God's providence, this coming Saturday is that day for Jews, for Jews. Um, I'm trying to talk in one of our own who has suggested this, that maybe we could get some Purim cookies from a good Jewish deli locally and, and have some Purim cookies with us next Sunday. But we'll see. Don't, don't hold your breath for that one. There's a quote that I've shared several times throughout this series, and I want to share it one more time and probably even again next week. And it's a quote by A.W. Tozer who said this, and we see this throughout the whole book. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And we know what that is. For many of us, we've experienced that. We have come to the end of ourself, and God hurts us. And he's hurting us because he loves us and because of his grace. And he's bringing us to the end of our rope so that we, he can open our eyes and open our ears and help us to see and to believe. And then greatly bless us. We've seen that throughout this book. We see it in the chapter this morning um, where we see once again this sense of this continuation of a reversal that started last week with chapter 8, and that reversal is continuing in chapter 9. But just, just briefly, the three points that we looked at last week was in chapter 8 that God will not be mocked. He will not forever be mocked by those who hate him and despise him. He will bring justice. It just may not be in our own lifetime. His justice against those whom we're crying out for to bring justice upon them who are doing something in our lives, we may experience it and we may not. But also remember this and keep this in mind. God will not be mocked by his own people who profess to love him, who say, I believe in him, and then mock him with our our lifestyle and our behavior. 
God will in his grace to us crush us in order to bring great blessing. So God will not be mocked. God will always protect his people. And then lastly, we looked and we're continuing with this. God is reversing the curse for good. I'd love to go back and review that, but we don't have time. And so point one this morning is just simply going to be this. The reversal continues. We see in chapter 9 that this reversal continues. In verse 1, we're told, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews instead gained mastery over those who hated them. And so we see this continuation of the reversal. It began in chapter 8 where, the, where Queen Esther was with the king Ahasuerus and then also Haman who was the one who initially wrote the edict saying, I want Mordecai and any Jew, I want him annihilated and killed. And Esther says to her husband, would you please reverse that? Would you please write a new edict to reverse what your right-hand man put into print? And we saw the beginning of that in chapter 8, where the king decided, Haman, you built a gallows to hang Mordecai on it for all of the public to see. We're going to put you on it instead. But it didn't just stop there. This reversal continues in chapter 9 where there is still this edict that's out there that is going to allow for the killing of all of God's people. What's interesting is you see in this, uh, in in verse 1, it tells us um, in the month, in the 12th month of Adar, in chapter 8, the edict is reversed at least in paper form, and it's sent out to all of the provinces saying, don't pay attention to what Haman sent out earlier. The king is issuing a new edict that all Jews are to be spared. Do not touch them. But if you're not familiar with this, the edict was sent in the third month of seven. And now here we are in chapter nine at the 12th month. So nine months have gone by where there's tension boiling and waiting. What's going to happen on the appointed day? And so we see this reversal is continued. We're told in this passage that there's a mastery that those who were non-Jews, they sought to have, but now the mastery has been given to the Jewish people and they have mastery over all non-Jews. And if you look at that word in the, in the Hebrew language, the Jews have mastery over them. It means to lord over somebody, to have dominion, to be in the position of power. Notice how it was nine months, but how quickly their situation changed. They were set to be annihilated. And they now have, because God ruling from the shadows, raises up someone like Esther, and this reversal has taken place. And now the Jewish people, God's chosen people, they are the ones in the position of power. 
Romans chapter 6 tells us this. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are now under, or since you are not under law, but you're under grace. Read read that again with just some of the words that I just read. For sin will not have power over you. Sin will not be able to lord over you any longer. Sin will not have great total possession of you any longer. Why? Because for us, the reversal is still taking place. It started back in Genesis. The Jewish people in captivity are experiencing in the book of Esther. And it continues today for you and for me. And this is the gospel. Where we're told in the book of Philippians, Paul says, I am sure of this. I'm confident of this. I believe this with all my life, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Because this reversal is continuing, that's that's God the Father saying to you, you are mine and I am yours and I am not done with you yet. I will have my way with you. This will go easily and graciously and gently, or you will go through a whole lot of pain, but I will have my way with you because you're mine. And so this reverse, this reversal is continuing. Point number two is this reversal demands action. When we experience the blessings of this reversal, it's not something where we just sit back and say, okay, Lord, you just do everything and I'm going to fight against you or I'm going to do nothing. In this chapter, we see literally, and then we see a lesson metaphorically for us, their reversal that was taking place, it demanded action on the part of God's people. The edict was sent out, but they still had to be ready to fight. (laughs) They still had to be ready to engage in battle. In verse 5, we read these words, The Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Under the first law that was sent out by Haman, the Jews could have, if Haman's law would have never been reversed, they could have fought back against that law, but it would have been to no avail. They would have been annihilated anyways. That was the king's wishes, and they were too small to overturn that. They were too small to fight back against that. But the curse... Or the, the edict has been reversed. And so there's this new law that's come into being. And this new law uh, permits them to do what? To go on a holy war? It does. But when you read the text carefully, they do not go on a holy war just killing men, women, and innocent children. The text is very clear. Uh, We see in verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities through all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought to harm them. 
We're told in here that they kill 300, 500, 75,000. But it qualifies it in verse 2 that they only engage in this holy war as an act of self-defense. This is not vindictiveness. This is not vengeance. This is God's people rightfully standing up against those who hate him and hate his people and they're defending themselves. You know, if you think about this, you could walk away from this with just a short, quick lesson. The edict has been declared. It's true. It's been stamped by the king. But God allows us, when he gives us a lesson and he teaches us something, he then usually places us in a position where we have to experience the truth that we just learned and know to be true. Do I really believe this? The edict has been issued. They're not to be touched. But they are not a people who are honorable and who love the true God. They hate the Jews. And so there are several of them who still come. And so we're told that because of Mordecai's leadership, many men were killed. And this text is very specific. The edict that was sent out by Haman specifically said that men, women, and children could be killed but we're told over and over they killed, they killed men. They killed the men. They killed the men. Which would suggest to us, or at least giving them the benefit of the doubt, that they did not go on this vengeance, striking down women and innocent children. They took the lives of those who were trying to take their lives. Um, you know, it's interesting and it's worth mentioning The text tells us three times they did not lay hands on the plunder. Victory victory alone was enough. God's, God's blessing in saving them was enough. I want you to think just for a second. When God often gives you and I victory... Over sin, because sin, we just read, sin no longer has mastery, no longer has dominion over us. When God often gives us victory, for some of us, that's not enough. I want everybody else to know it. I'm not just secure and content and satisfied with God's approval and his blessings. I want everybody to know because I want the victory, but then I also want the approval of my friends. You, you, you can take this in so many different ways, but we're, we're told, and, it, and since he mentions it three times, clearly God wanted us to know this. They didn't take any of their plunder. They had the right. It was in the edict. They could if they wanted, but they chose. Victory alone is enough. God's blessing upon us is Enough. You, you may walk away and disagree with me on this next part under this point too, and, and that's okay. Um, a few years ago, there was a TV series that I have to confess that I watched 
uh, on Netflix until it was removed. And it was a series that starred one of, one of my, he's not my favorite actor, but I really like watching him, Kevin Bacon. And he starred in this, this movie where he was an ex-FBI agent that was called in to help track down a serial killer who had escaped from prison that he had put there. And the irony of this particular show, and I'm not going to mention the name, don't, don't, don't Google this, don't try to look it up. The, 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 the caveat of this particular TV series was the writers of the show decided we are going to push the limits as far as we can in how this serial killer will conduct his business. And after two years of this show, this is, this, I don't know if this has ever happened, but after two years of this show, because the writers were so creative and they were so depraved, the network came to the conclusion, we are no longer describing sinful, murderous culture. We are starting to prescribe it. We're not describing events that have taken place. We're inventing and prescribing new ways of evil. And they shut the TV show down. I'm convinced that when we read this passage in Esther chapter 9, it is not prescriptive for us. There are too many Christians who look for just one verse or one chapter that can justify their anger and their mistreatment of those who do not believe the gospel. And I'm convinced this chapter, Esther Esther chapter 9, it's not prescribing the Christian life for us. It's describing a very specific moment in God's redemptive history where this took place, but this is not normative behavior. There are so many passages in the New Testament that we can turn to that suggest just the opposite. Surely those passages don't mean you must lay down your life if somebody wants to take it. You have, we have the God-given right to defend ourselves. But we also have, if we're a part of Christ's followers, if we're in his family, we also have to have this sense of wisdom and discernment Romans chapter 12 gives us several verses to look at. Verse uh, 17 says, Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jim used a phrase a few weeks ago when he preached, just deserts. And every one of us knows what that is. We know within the, the core of our being, when somebody wrongs me, I want vengeance. I want justice. I want retaliation. I want what's owed to me. And we see it in Esther chapter 9, and God allows it, and he sanctions it, and he blesses it. But there are too many verses in the New Testament that do not give you and I that same blessing. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, just simply says this. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This leads us to the third point where what I just suggested to you is absolutely impossible to do apart from the grace of God living in us and through us. Not only can we not do that, we don't want to do that. And so we see that the reverse is continuing. The reversal demands action on our part. We have to become engaged. We have to fight. That's the, this is the metaphorical part of what we see in chapter 9. They're putting to death the enemy of God. You and I are called to live such a life and put to death, put to death the enemy that's keeping us from leading a holy and honorable life. We have to fight against that. Theologians call that the process of mortification. Put to death the sins that ensnare you. And we can't do any of that apart from the grace of God living in us and through us. And so the point number three is, it's good news, the reversal is already secured. When Jesus went to the cross and he was hanging there, he said the words, it is finished. It's done. It doesn't mean you sit back and just let it happen. It means that you, in his grace, which is driving you, changing our wills, it's his grace that gives us the ability to push back and fight against the enemy of this world. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is how the reversal is secured, for what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, and then you endure? What credit is that? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And this is part of the gospel. The gospel isn't just to give you good fire insurance and to save you and to give you an eternity with, with him and with his son, with the spirit. The gospel also gives us the ability by his grace to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And so we fight, we push back against the curse, but ultimately it's in God's hands. And we remember Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What do you, what do, you do with this passage in this chapter? We see war language in the New Testament. God, God will not be mocked. He's protecting his children. He comes, he rules from the shadows. What do we do with that? In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, we see this wartime mentality in verse 10, where we see, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. 
so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And right before that, we were reminded, if if you're a follower of Christ, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but your fight is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers that over this present darkness. So how do we do that? Strap on your armor and fight. Don't become a pacifist spiritually. This is why the house of God in America is crumbling. Because too many people don't know how to put on the armor of God. They don't know how to avail themselves to the Holy Spirit that's been given to us and to stand and to fight. We have become a people of God who sees the enemy coming and we just cower and we say, have your way with me, sin. The, 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 the battle's been finished. Jesus said it's finished. It's done. That means he's already accomplished for us what we couldn't do, but now because the Spirit lives in us, we're able to fight against it. And so it's just one takeaway this morning. Strap on the armor and fight. They knew their enemy, didn't they? They stood there with sword in hand waiting. They knew the enemy that was coming. They knew their enemy. And because they knew their enemy, they were able to fight. And too many of us aren't aware enough or have not identified, are not honest with ourselves to be able to say, this is my proclivity to sin. This is what trips me up. I'm I'm identifying it. I know what it is, and I want to put on the armor of God so I can stand and be ready so that when the evil one comes and he tempts me and he wants to have mastery over me, the Holy Spirit whispers into our ears and into our mind that no longer has mastery over you. I've given you mastery over that. What what does that look like to put on the armor of God? I think it looks like in uh, the book of Philippians, and and this is it, Philippians chapter 2, you see this balance. You see this command, and then you see this beautiful promise, this working out, this flesh of what does it mean to be? It's finished. You see these two things going hand in hand. And in some of our minds, in my mind, it doesn't make sense, I don't understand it, but in God's economy it does where Paul tells the Philippians, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't cower. Don't say, okay, I, I'm just, I know I'm going to give in again. Okay. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I've given you the illustration before. I own my own sin. I'm identifying it. Those doggone people who come on Saturday morning for the prayer group. I love them to death. And yesterday there were 14 of us sitting around the table. And we had such a sweet time at the office. And then the donuts that I provide, they won't take them home. And those doggone things sit and they call my name all day long. And I confess that sometimes I just go, okay. (laughs) 
but the gospel tells us to work out your salvation. That Krispy Kreme blueberry donut doesn't have mastery over you. Now, that, that's a silly example. It's true. It's true. But some of us are fighting battles that are kicking our tails. And, and I want you to hear this beautiful promise. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, by the way, for those of you who have thick skulls, that's all of us, right? Oh, by the way, you're supposed to work at it trembling. Verse 13, but it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know what that's saying? That's saying he's calling you to obedience, but then he's going to enable you to do it. When you press in and lean in and trust on him, he's going to command it, and then he doesn't step away and go, angels, come watch this. He's going to screw up royally. He commands us, and he says, angels, watch this. I gave him my spirit. He has victory. If only he would avail himself to it. Let's pray. Father, help us. Forgive us for taking joy or small pleasure in the just evil that exists in our world. Father, we confess that we do view many of the Muslims. We view them from many from the Middle East the way the Jews viewed the Amalekites. Father, have great pity on us and mercy and change our hearts. Father, would you open our eyes to see that you have outfitted us with everything that we need for godliness. God, send us out that we might glorify you in all that we say, in all that we do, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we glorify you as we live amongst the people who don't honor you and don't know you. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.